Go and turn uh, to the book of Acts in your New Testament. Uh, that'll be our first place we'll go this morning. Uh, hopefully you've been encouraged so far. I, I know I have in these songs. That, as I always say, they redirect, they refocus you know, when we all get to heaven. And that's our, that's our destination. It's not retirement. It's not vacationing. It's uh, arriving together. No one left behind in our eternal home. Uh, thank you, Audrey, for passing out the notes for today. Appreciate the comments from those who say these are helpful to either take your own notes or, or mainly as a reference point, uh, especially today. We're not going to look at every sermon text here. We're going to try to highlight certain ones. And uh, a lot of times I make a lot of editorial decisions as I'm preaching when I realize I don't have that much time or that Janet's about to leave if I keep on going longer. I'm just, no, she's never... <laughs> But, uh, uh, but I want you to be able to look at them on your own. Uh, a lot of times we only need to look at one, but sometimes I want to put three or four to show that there's a consistent pattern of teaching in this area. So that's especially true today with uh, this lesson. We're going to talk today about when we meet, a biblical look at why we do, what we do, when we assemble. Let me say all that again, make sure I got it right. When we meet, a biblical look at why we do what we do, when we assemble. These last few weeks, we've taken a look at our nature as a church in general. We've looked specifically at um, the late Merced Church of Christ, our identity, our, our challenges, our opportunities that we have. And this morning, we're going to kind of go back. We've been going, kind of going back and forth between bigger themes and then smaller themes. But this morning, I want to look at these, these assemblies themselves and why we engage in the worship activities or the edification activities that we do. And I want to introduce this lesson by a story I remember a preacher telling years ago when I was a little boy. He talked about a young mother that would always have a large group of people over to her home on Thanksgiving. And she'd fix all the traditional foods, the, the dressing and the the vegetables with the uh, onion rings on the top and the fruit salads and the rolls. And she had the traditional Thanksgiving ham. And she brought it out one uh, gathering, and the end was cut off. About one quarter of it was cut off. And, and one of the people there at the table asked her, well, what, I, I just have to ask, why is the end cut off of this ham? She says, well, I don't know. That's the way my mom always used to make it. it was the end. She always cut the end off. And uh, so... The young mother became curious. Well, why did, why did mom always do that? So she called her mother later that day. Mom, why did you always cut the end off of the ham? She said, well, well, grandma always used to cut the end off the ham. And I don't know any more reason than that. The grandma used to cut the end off the ham, so I cut the end off the ham, and I guess that's why you're doing it too. So the mother said, well, let me call, let me call grandma and find out why she cut the end off the ham. Well, she kind of called the elderly grandmother, and uh, she asked her, why, why did you cut the, the end off the ham? Because my daughter's doing it too, but none of us really know why we're doing it. And the great-grandmother basically said, well, my oven was too small, and the only way I could get it in is to cut the end off. Well, that made sense to one generation, <laughs> but the other generation was just doing it because it had always kind of been done that way that it really did not need to be done, or they just simply didn't know why. And sometimes that's the case with our services. We come in and we kind of know exactly what to do. There's a lot of value in tradition of regularity because we don't have to think about what's going to happen next, and we can focus on the things that we've structurally built into our service. But sometimes we simply need to go back and look at the biblical reasons why we're doing these things. So one, we're doing it as God expects us to do, and we're getting the value out of it that God expects because these are precious times that we assemble together. So we want to make sure we're getting the value that God wants us um, to get. Some churches do things differently. So sometimes we have to simply take a look at what we're doing, and uh, our job is not to judge other churches, but to make sure what we are doing has a strong biblical foundation. Sometimes we simply want to reinforce that foundation. Uh, sometimes we might need to adjust things. If we've kind of lost our focus and we don't really know why, or maybe things have changed, which causes a need for an adjustment. Um, 
So today we're going to look at the biblical pattern of worship assemblies or what Christians did when they gathered together, see what those things were, and then see why they did them. Let's first look at simply the whole idea of gathering together. Um, We'll look at Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and look at that now. Acts chapter 2, just gathering together itself. Why do we do this? Go ahead, Nathaniel, on to the next one. Acts chapter 2. The importance of this text, actually, I jumped ahead of myself. Um, I want to set some guidelines for why we look at these texts. Um, Thank you, Nathaniel, for just going on to the, the slide I meant to go to. Here's some guidelines for looking at churches in the New Testament. Uh, First of all, they were under the apostles' instruction, and that's why we look at the Bible first to gauge what we're doing. Now the relevance of Acts chapter 2. This is the very beginning of Christianity. Jesus has ascended back into heaven. The apostles have preached the first sermon. 3,000 people were baptized into Christ. But we see what they did after they were baptized. Verse 42 now, Acts 2. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Verse 46 Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together and with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Just think about what you saw here. What are some of the things you noticed that early believers did under the apostles' teaching? That's first thing that Luke records here is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Remember the apostles were the hand-picked men that would carry on the mission of Jesus after his ascension. They were chosen by him to be a spokesperson for God. They would guide and build these early churches based on teaching that they received directly from Jesus or directly from the Holy Spirit. So these activities that the early church engaged in were not just things they decided, hey, this might be good to do, or, or there might be another church that does this. There was no other church. They were doing it simply because they were instructed by the apostles. What are some of the things you noticed here in Acts 2, 42 through 46? It's probably four or five things. Anything you notice in particular? No right or wrong answers here. Just look for things that Luke tells us that the early church did right after their conversion here. What do you see in 42 through uh, 46? You see them gathering together. Yeah, they came together. They didn't just say, hey, we're baptized. Let's all go to our separate places. Hope to see you later sometime. The first thing they did is gather together. Very good, Marigail. They gathered together. They sensed, based on teaching, they needed to be together and engage in certain things that would strengthen them. What are some of those certain things that we see? It would be natural things or God-directed things to strengthen themselves. What do you see in uh, verse 44 and 45? They reached out and they did what with each other? Right. They gave to each other. Uh, they shared in their possessions, had everything in common based on their need. So they immediately were there for each other. Becoming a Christian for many meant social ostracism that would eventually arrive because of Jewish persecution. But here, maybe there were genuinely needy people that were already in the state of impoverishment. So they recognized the need to help each other. What did they meet in 46 to do? It says they broke bread in their homes, and it says they ate together. Breaking bread in the New Testament is um, a metaphor for the Lord's Supper, but sometimes it's simply a metaphor for a common meal. Both of them appear here in this text. They... Um, broke bread together in their homes, which meant a Lord's Supper type communion. And then they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They praised God, which would probably naturally involve singing. But again, it says in verse 42, they devote themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were being instructed. So the activities here were based on instruction. 
Um, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 and 22. Here's the importance of the apostles. Remember, Jesus was no longer there on earth. He had ascended back into his Father's presence in heaven. But the apostles were left to guide these churches in their early state. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, as far as the role of the apostles. He says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Verse 20 now. Built on the foundation. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. Let's just work backwards a little bit. So God is living within the church. And who is the cornerstone of the church? Jesus Christ says He is the chief cornerstone. So the church starts with Him, but His presence was no longer physically there with the churches. So the foundation then lies upon whose presence in this early stage of Christianity? The apostles, which were those hand people, Peter, James, and John. Then it says the prophets. Prophets were other individuals who had the miraculous ability to show that God was speaking through them. You see their appearance in different places. But the foundation of the church in general and local churches specifically is Christ and the apostles. We don't have the, thought of the apostles' physical presence today just like we don't have Jesus' physical presence. But we do have the recorded teaching that's been accurately passed down. So when we cite biblical references, we're citing the same teaching that was received by early churches. Instruction applies to us today. Our humanity continues, our need for direction, instruction to praise God, to meet the needs of one another, that continues on today. But we have to acknowledge that uh, some things need to be reinforced. We know that they're true already. So we need to be reminded of those things. James, I'm sorry, Peter talks about truths that he would simply remind the brethren of, though they'd already been taught them. But some practices have limited application. Just because we run across it in the New Testament doesn't mean it's immediately applicable for us today. Um, we talked last week about miraculous gifts such as tongue speaking, uh, healing, and even prophecy, those gifts were for a certain time in the early stages of the church when they did not have what we have. That is a complete written revelation. And people had to depend upon the oral integrity of the person speaking to them. Were they speaking from God or were they just making up stuff on their own? Well, if someone could do an authentic miracle, that would authenticate the message. But when the message was complete these miracles would drop out. And that's exactly what Paul teaches 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, some instruction is culturally bound. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you'll see that Paul taught about women wearing head coverings in the church to show their relationship to their husbands or to men in general. That was something that was applicable to culture in Corinth at the time. Women wore these head coverings and Early Christian women thought, well, maybe we just discard them now that we're Christians and we don't need to follow any custom that's part of our time 2,000 years ago. Paul said, no, you need to follow that custom during that time, but that custom changed over time. Now, some still follow it, believing there's still application, but most understand that that was simply something that had cultural significance. Fasting, too, was something that was very legitimate, but was something that was instructed to be done under the first covenant though some would still carry it on under the New Covenant. So some things have limited application. Some things have timeless application. Let's look at the ones that we see have timeless application. Number one, gathering together as a church. This is what Mary Gale noticed from the Acts chapter 2 text. We assemble as a church based on instruction, examples, and to strengthen ourselves. We don't gather just to gather. 
The reason why we're all here today is because we find the early churches gathering because they were told to do so. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says they uh, were under the apostles' teaching, and it says at least twice they gathered together. They must have been told to do that. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, we find them gathering together. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, the church was gathering together in prayer. So you find this consistent pattern in the New Testament of early churches gathering together. They were gathered together in 1 Corinthians 11 to take the Lord's Supper, even though Paul had to correct them because they weren't doing it properly, but they were gathered together. Look how important this is based on Hebrews chapter 10 now. This is one we'll look at. This is how important assembling together as a church was. Sometimes during intense persecution, some believers were afraid to get together. They thought, well, maybe I just, I just need to stay home because it's too dangerous to get out and meet together. We could be taken away by a Roman soldier. Or some just became lax. They thought they didn't need to anymore. But look what the writer of Hebrews says, verse 23 of chapter 10. He says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Then verse 25 now. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Two things to notice. First he says, let's hold on unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider one another how we might provoke each other to love and good works. He's basically saying you need to encourage each other. We're in the minority here as believers. They were in the first century and we are today. So we need to be encouraged or provoked to love and good works, he says, to do the things we ought to do as a Christian. And then to add the point, verse 25, and not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Some had just abandoned the service altogether were coming so sporadically, they really were not being a source of encouragement, but instead being a source of discouragement. He says, don't do that, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, and the day there is the return of Christ. So here, gathering together was essential. It was commanded of Christians, whether or not they wanted to or not. It says you need to. Sometimes you got to go to the hospital if you're not feeling well, whether you really want to go or not. Because you know you need to go. And then most always you're glad you went. And many people commented the last few weeks about times they've come to church. They didn't feel like being here, but they brought their body here. <laughs> and in almost every occasion, we all say it was good that we did that. We're glad we did. Austin specifically has mentioned that. We're glad that we did, even though we didn't feel like it. Our body hurt, we were sad, we just were tired, but we just brought ourselves. We're encouraged simply by gathering together. Number two, things we find early Christians doing. Second is communing in the Lord's Supper. Communing in the Lord's Supper. Go ahead and bring that, there we go, we got it. We share in the Lord's Supper based on instruction, example, and need to remember or proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is one where we find uh, probably our most strongest understanding because before we engage in communion every first day of the week, we usually have verses read or there is a reminder where we'll read the text and uh, the Luke chapter 22 text is one that talks about Jesus Himself instituting the Lord's Supper based on the Passover. And He passes out the element of unleavened bread and He passes out the fruit of the vine. And he says, take, eat, this is my body, and drink from this cup, all of it, and do this in what? Do this in, well, that verse is not up there, but a lot of churches have it right up around the table. Do this in, I heard someone say it, in remembrance of me. We're very familiar with that. Do this in remembrance of me. So here, Jesus indicated he wanted this done. He was laying down this pattern of involvement or engagement in his death for early believers. Well, the question might be, well, did early Christians continue that? 
Or was it just a one-time thing or something just for the apostles? Well, remember in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, early Christians met, to be, met together to break bread and they ate together in their homes. Breaking bread had become a metaphor for the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Lord's Supper is referred to as a communion. The word communion means to share together. So the Lord's Supper was never something you just did individually all by yourself somewhere, though you could, but it was never the design of it. It was something to be done together. Acts chapter 20, we'll look at this text as far as an example of early churches doing this. Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Here Luke is writing about his travels with the Apostle Paul, going from one city to another, teaching the gospel, or going back to churches that had already been started. But he makes this observation in verse 7 in the 20th chapter. Luke writes, On the first day of the week, we came together to what? Break bread. So on the same day that Christ was resurrected, the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. It says Paul spoke to the people. There's some teaching. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. So here we find the early church gathered purposefully on the first day of the week. They would not have done that for a common meal. They'd be doing that regularly every day. But on the first day of the week, that's the frequency we find. Early churches got together to break bread. And the implication there is that it's the Lord's Supper. We find extensive teaching on that. 1 Corinthians 11 now. 1 Corinthians 11, that's a text we'll look at. Where we find the Corinthian church was not observing the Lord's Supper properly. They were not communing together. They weren't sharing. Some were coming early and leaving. Uh, others were not really sharing with each other in any way. They weren't remembering properly the body of Christ and the sacrifice. And look what he tells them in verse 23, chapter 11. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's quoting the exact words of Jesus. Verse 25, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So here we find the exact quotation of Christ's word. And Paul says, I received this directly from the Lord. So here Jesus directly spoke to him, implying that this is something to be continued by churches. And exactly what we find in Matthew and Luke as far as the initial institution of the Lord's Supper. And the repetition of these words, do this in remembrance of me. And the early church is doing it. So this is something that was to be continued by Christians wasn't just something for the first set of apostles and, or the first set of believers or the apostles. It was a continuous activity. It's the event that changes our lives. We were brought from death to life by the death of Jesus. If you were to watch TV or see modern movies, you'd think everything else in the world is the most important thing. This is the one time we get to focus as a group upon the most important thing. And that is Christ's death for us. Again, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says, when we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So it's an ongoing practice that we're proclaiming the Lord's death is the most important thing in my life. All the way to the end of our life where Christ returns. So there's a purpose, there's instruction to do this, there's example of early churches doing this, centering on the most important thing. Number three, singing together. Singing together. On one level, it's just enjoyable to sing. You might like singing in your car, some like singing in the shower, some like just singing to themselves, but some don't like to sing. They'd rather hear others sing. But in the New Testament, we find that we are to sing together. And 
We do that based on instruction that we'll look at. We do it based on examples. And we do it for the reason of strengthening each other, not entertaining each other or just making ourselves feel good, but we do so to strengthen each other. Let's look at some biblical text. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. These are the most direct. In Acts chapter 2, just think about it as you turn to Ephesians 5, but in Acts chapter 2, the foundational text, we saw that they praised God together. Now, they could have just been exclaiming to God His greatness, but most likely when it says in Acts 2 they were praising God, it involves singing because the early Christians were Jewish in background. And they would have sang songs of praise to God under their Jewish heritage. So that's what would be naturally done by them. But look how it's underlined, reinforced in this text. And then we'll look at Colossians 3.16. But look at the reason why. Look at the reason why we sing that's brought out in these texts. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. He says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, or spiritual songs, sing and make music from your heart, or in your heart, to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he says in verse 17, don't be foolish, but understand what? Understand what the, in verse 17, what the will of the Lord is. So they're to always be receiving teaching. Well, that can be done through preaching and teaching, but here it's also done through singing. It says, don't be drunk and be filled with intoxicating spirits, but instead, verse 19, speak to one another. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. He's telling them they're to communicate with each other through singing spiritual concepts. Hymns and psalms and spiritual songs were songs that had words that go to the heart that then changes our life by always centering us and directing us. But also, he says, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. So here we're communicating to each other, but we're also communicating vertically, directly to God. What a powerful engagement in song. Singing to each other about when we all get to heaven, but we're singing it in praise to God at the same time. Yes. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're strengthening ourselves. Amen. When we think that retirement is all that there is, or vacation is all that there is, or the weekend is all that there is, oh, that's right, when we all get to heaven. That's our ultimate destination. That's where life is going. So we're strengthening ourselves, and we're praising God in the process. There are certain songs might be songs of praise. Look at Colossians. Now, just go forward two books. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Notice how this point about teaching is strengthened as Paul gives the basic same instruction to another church, the church in Colossae. Verse 15, beginning. Colossians 3, verse 15. He says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Notice in verse 15, he said, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. As members of one body are called to peace, be thankful for... Well, how can you do that? He says, well, let the message of Christ dwell in you richer. Let it, let it sink down inside, he's saying. Well, how do you do that? He says, as you teach and admonish one another. 
We're singing to each other when we sing. We're singing to each other. He says, as you teach and admonish, admonish means correction. We're kind of, there's an old song I remember we used to sing, Did You Think to Pray? Remember that song, Did You Think to Pray? Boy, and if you hadn't prayed all week, <laughs> that song admonished you. No, I didn't think to pray. I kind of skipped prayer all, all week. So a lot of the older songs especially, but a lot of the newer songs too, will kind of go to the heart. Um, a lot of songs that, that Nathaniel sings um, speak to the rule of Christ as far as purity. Uh, there's one that's just right on the edge of my mind. There's one about um, controlling our will. Um, the directly from Psalm 51, I think. But a lot of those songs that are new today speak to a sense of self-control, propriety as believers. And old hymns did the same thing. So we're letting the Word of God dwell within us. But we're also, it says, singing in verse 16, singing to God with gratitude. So think about the song, Count Your Blessings. Count your blessings, name them one by one, and see what God hath done. Here, we're teaching each other, but we're also praising God by remembering all the different ways He's blessed us. And then he says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father. Singing is a powerful way to do that. Churches gathered together and they participated in singing. Uh, we find that in Acts 2.47, 16.25. Uh, James says in chapter 5, verse 13, if anyone is happy, let them sing songs. So singing is something we naturally do. It's just focused and refined in our Christian assemblies by challenging each other through songs, and that's why it's such a focal point. Number four, receiving teaching. We share an instruction based on instruction. Examples and the need to be instructed by God. We saw already Acts 2.42, where it says the early church, right after their baptism, continued in the apostles' teaching. Basically, all of the New Testament is teaching. And the New Old Testament is also teaching for us, just on somewhat of a different level of its application, or in its application. But early churches received constant instruction. Great example of that. Turn to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy, near the end of your New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through. 1 Timothy, and I just want to pick out chapter 4. We've been looking at a lot of small verses, but I want to just read the entirety of chapter 4 now. And I want you to just notice all the different references to what Timothy is told to do as a preacher. 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are books written to preachers, telling them, here's what you ought to be teaching among the churches that you're involved in. So we find out what we ought to be taught, and notice the importance of that instruction. Verse 1 beginning, and just kind of underline in your mind, or if you have an underliner or a highlighter, I mean, or you're underlining, underline all the times where a reference to receiving teaching is mentioned. Verse 1, 1 Timothy 4. Paul tells Timothy, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and they order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. Let's just pause here for a moment. What, what is the problem that he's addressing in verses 1 through 5? It says in verse 1, there are some who are abandoning what? Abandoning the faith. Some are leaving things they were taught. He says they're following deceiving spirits or things that demons would teach. And one was saying that, hey, you can't be married. Uh, others were teaching that, hey, you can't eat certain foods, where Paul said, hey, all foods made by God are able. So people are receiving all this conflicting and wrong teaching. So that implies there was a correct set of teachings. Well, look what Paul tells Timothy to do, verse 6. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on what? 
the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed, verse 7, have nothing to do with godless myths, old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the what? The life to come. Verse 9, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. This is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. Verse 11 now, command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love in faith and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to what? The public reading of Scripture. To preaching and teaching. Do not neglect the gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will both what? Save both yourself and your hearers. That is the message to Timothy the preacher. First says, you watch out for your life. You better be living what you're preaching. You better walk the walk and not just talk the talk. So he says, you watch out for yourself. But he says, concerning the truths of the faith, you command and you teach these things. Give attention to the public reading of Scripture. That implies everyone could participate in the teaching. It wasn't just something that was hidden in one group and then they imparted it. Everyone participates in it. So receiving teaching was critical. Book of Titus, you'll see the same thing. Titus 2, 1 through 15, 3, 1 and 3, 8. Consistent, continual emphasis in Scripture upon teaching and instruction. And that's why it's part of our assembly. God's teaching addresses our marriages, addresses our personal lives, our thoughts, our actions, even our good deeds, they have to be done with the right motives. We don't do things to impress others. Well, Jesus taught, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, implying that you're not to do things just to impress others. That's part of biblical teaching. So we're constantly being shaped, corrected, encouraged by teaching. So it's a central part of our assemblies. God constantly telling us, here's the way to go. Correct yourself. It's like we're always driving in the Christian life. Driving is basically a process of always correcting. You're trying to stay within the lines, not go too fast, not go too slow, stay in the lane. The Christian life is the same thing. And our teaching, our instruction keeps us centered so we're not driving all over the freeway. And especially not going backwards or crashing. Direction. Yes, direction. And we don't want to abandon it. We don't want to just get out of the car and stop driving. He talks about those who abandon the faith. We don't do that. So teaching keeps us going to our ultimate destination. Number five, praying together. We pray together based on instruction, examples, and the need to seek God's blessing. Are you noticing a pattern here in these, the, the subtitles of the each point? That we're doing these things based on what? Number one, instruction from God. Examples, we see early churches doing this. And there's the practical application of it. With praying, it's to seek God's blessing. Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the early church was praying together from the very beginning. They prayed together. Acts chapter 12, verse 12, they prayed together. They gathered together at the house of Mary, praying together. You find a constant encouragement to do that, or examples of it being done. But now look at an instruction to do that. Look at Ephesians chapter 6. Look what the Apostle Paul specifically asked for in prayer. Look what he told the Ephesian church to do for him. Even though he was the mighty Apostle Paul, writer of 13 of the 27 letters of the New Testament, the greatest figures of the Bible next to Jesus Christ, notice what he still asked for. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. He says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions. 
with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the Gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Let's see what the first thing he tells me to do. He says, pray in the Spirit. That means pray under the Spirit of God's instruction. Pray what Scripture tells you to pray for. He says on all occasions with all kinds of prayers. And he says, keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So you're not just praying for yourself. You're praying for others too. But then he says, verse 19, pray for me also. And what did he specifically ask for? Pray that I might speak what? Boldly. Without fear. Even though he was the bold Apostle Paul, he recognized his strength did not come from his personality. His strength came from who? The Lord. And sometimes it was not easy when he was under the threat of death. In fact, he wrote this Ephesian letter while he was in prison because of his faith. Four of his 13 letters were written while he was in prison. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and I knew I'd forget the fourth. I'll have to look that up. I need to spend more time, what? In the Word. He, why we know that is because he mentions, like here he says he's an ambassador in chains. So he references an imprisonment situation. That's going to really bug me that I can't remember that fourth. But uh, if you find, if you can name the fourth, you will be the prize winner today. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and there's one more where he mentions being in chain for the gospel. He simply says, pray for me that I might be bold because he had a humanity like ours. So what should the Ephesian church do when they gather together? Ignore that? <laughs> no, they, hey, let's pray for Paul right now. Remember the time we did that for the U Ukrainian people? Remember Elizabeth, she said, hey, can we pray right now for the situation in Ukraine? And I can imagine the Ephesian church doing that. Hey, can we pray right now for Paul? He wrote us to asking us to do that. So we pray together as a church. We take our concerns to the one who has the power to change things in the world and in our personal lives. And we pray to the one who cares the most. A lot of people may care, but they don't have the power to do anything about it our delicate circumstance in life, or difficult. But God has both the power and the care. And even if He says no to our request, we can know that there's a reason for it. That God heard this request, but for a reason He's not answering it right now, or He will later, or maybe He sees a picture that we don't see and may say no altogether. We can't lose with prayer. We are told to pray, and we do that together. The last one, number six, sharing resources. We give based on, like every other point, instruction, examples, and financial need within the church. We noticed in Acts chapter 2, because we keep revisiting that, that foundational text, that they gave to each other. First of all, it says they had all things in common. And they did not consider anyone's stuff as simply their own stuff. Like, hey, I'm just going to hang on to my stuff. It said they had all things in common, but let's see how else they saw it. Look at Acts 4 now. Acts 4. We saw it in Acts 2. Let's see again in Acts 4 how this was a continued emphasis upon reaching out and meeting each other's needs. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. We already saw Acts chapter 2 in giving. Look at Acts 4 now. Acts 4, verse 32. Look what Luke records about the earliest stage of the church. He says, All the believers were of one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. But they shared what? Everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerful work in them all, that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had what? Who'd need. I want to notice two things from these instructions on giving. First of all, the church considered having all things in common. No one was stingy saying, hey, this is my stuff. This is mine. Even though they had their own possessions, it says here they had their own houses. People had their own land. It wasn't like they just sold everything all at once and kind of lived in a communal situation. They still lived in their individual dwellings, but some, some chose if they had extra to sell that. And they put it at the apostles' feet to be distributed. But based on what? Just giving to be giving? It says they gave and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. The same thing was said in Acts 2. Giving in the New Testament was need-based. There wasn't just general giving, even though at times Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, lay aside a certain amount each first day of the week so that there be no collection when I come. Sometimes there's a gathered up giving because it's difficult to get a large amount of money all at once when you need it. So that's why churches will give to a fund so they have money available but still there's an idea that, there, that there's a need that we want to make sure we can address and not be stuck in the position where no one can liquidate their assets quick enough or we just don't have any liquid assets. But there's an amount to give, but it's still being driven by need. Uh, extensive instruction on giving is given in uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Uh, early Christians in Judea suffered famine. And churches from predominantly Greek areas were instructed by the Apostle Paul to give a part of what they had and that money was sent to Jerusalem and then distributed to Christians who were in need. But the idea there was there's a need present or there was a need on the horizon that they were there to meet. Uh, we've talked about as trustees that in the months to come we'll, we'll take a closer look at uh, need and our giving because we're kind of in a unique situation here at Lake Merced. We receive more revenue from rental income than we have based on member giving, even though the member giving here is very generous. Very few churches have the situation we have. So how do we see need? Then how do we see our responsibility? How do we handle income coming from these other sources? We're going to explore that further, especially when it comes time to look at our budget, to look at how we expend things, and as we're required as trustees to bring things to the congregation. Because we're in this unique, good situation, but challenging because in the New Testament, giving or money came from individuals as there was an need, immediate need present. Our situation is a little different today here at Lake Merced. And every church situation is a little different. So every church has to go back to the New Testament and see how can we closely mirror the instructions given here. That we have basically a good situation where we simply have to see how we're using the good things that God has brought our way. But as we conclude this lesson, just notice how that all six of the things we looked at had these things in common. One, they're things that we find direct instruction from the apostles to do. Secondly, we find examples of early Christians giving. So that reinforces the direct instruction. And then we have a practical purpose to each one of them. We don't just sing to sing. We don't just pray to pray. We don't just hear teaching to be taught. Our lives are changed by these activities. Or we're changing the lives of others through prayer. And we're shaping our life as a church. We're meeting needs as they arrive. Everything has this practical, life-changing purpose. Things that we do right when we assemble. Some of these things go beyond even our assemblies, like we pray outside of the assemblies, but these are all things we do right here now. Can you think of a more important place to be at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning? Can you think of any assembly that has a greater value than the time when God's people get together? As I said in the announcements, um, at our 40th year high school reunion last night, it was a really enjoyable thing. Seeing my childhood friend that grew up on Vichy Avenue that I hadn't seen since graduation. Seeing a lot of people I only see on Facebook and seeing good friends and when you just pick up right where you left off and there's a slideshow and video from graduation I didn't even know existed and uh, 
pictures of me, I didn't even know were, were there. But someone took a lot of pictures when we were in high school, back when there wasn't digital cameras. And, and we just really enjoyed it. And everybody's posting on Facebook today about, oh, how nice it was to see each other. And, and a lot of reminiscing, a lot of just, oh, look at the nice things we did, and laughing about fun things. But as powerful as a 40-year high school graduation get-together is, it is still taught by what we're doing right now. Because as Paul said earlier, we're speaking to our life now and life to come. What we're doing right now echoes into eternity. We're not here reminiscing about how the Lake Merced Church used to be big. There you go. We're talking about, or always moving forward. We're talking about our future, what we ought to be. We're challenging ourselves. There's no challenging of each other last night at graduation, get together, a reunion. It was just enjoying good times, enjoying stories. But here we're changing lives. We're doing the most important things that affect the most important things of our life and that keep us on this pilgrimage faithfully till the day that God calls us home. I can think of no import, more important assembly. Not the NBA Finals, not the World Series, not the Super Bowl, not a family reunion, not a high school reunion, not a car club get-together, not a gardening <laughs> a weekly social, or anything like that. Nothing is as important as a church assembly. Treasure your time here and treasure the value of the relationships we share together. May our God be praised Amen. through us doing exactly what He told us to do and then us reaping the benefit of His knowing that we needed this. Amen. To proclaim the Lord's death till He comes, to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, to pray together in the Spirit, receive instruction for correction, for reproof, for instruction in godliness. All these things, we're doing everything in one setting. And may God help us to walk humbly in these assemblies. And may they always be about Him. May we not just follow trends to make ourselves look good or compare ourselves to other churches, but simply be who we are, shaped by Jesus Christ and Him alone. And He will take care of the rest. Amen. We're going to sing this song now to encourage us to Continue a faithful walk. We are called to be a faithful church. And we're as faithful as the lives of the people that are part of the church, because the church is people. And may we be strengthened by not only God's words as we directly read them, but by His words as they appear in song. Because they instruct us, they edify us. And we thank God in the process. Let's stand and sing the song as Nathaniel leads us.